what questions do you have? I know Alan was here last week and covered every question that you could possibly imagine, and so we won't talk about that. Alan, I've already talked about what y'all talked about, and there's nothing to cover there. So, what have y'all? What are you, what questions do you have out of Second Chronicles first? Apologize for that. I've got apparently Brazil let let me come home with a little something. Elaine, you weren't there to help us out this year with that. But it, I'm sure it is, Wayne. And when we got to the hotel this, this year, there was no Brazilian through an interpreter telling us to find out who the crazy American is that keeps calling to see if Elaine made it. All right. What questions do you have in Second Chronicles, or things that stuck out to you, things that you enjoyed or uh, saw? I know that a lot of it seems like repeat, and so when you seems like repeat, there are a couple of things that you can look for: things that are left out or things that are added, and why that's significant. Okay, so you think about that, but. What, what kind of stood out to you in Second Chronicles? I've got a couple things to point out if you don't have questions, but I want to make sure we discuss what you've got there. One thing is, in the life, and this may have been last week actually in your reading, in the life of David, there's a very important event left out of the Chronicles. You may know what that is? Bathsheba. He doesn't include Bathsheba. Now, it does say that he doesn't go to war when everybody else goes to war. But Chronicles isn't concerned with Bathsheba. Now, that's a pretty important event, right? I mean, that's a big event. Well, the reason is, like we've talked about, is that Chronicles is written from a perspective of a people who are trying to rebuild their worship. And so, the book of Chronicles is most concerned about what does worship look like and what does it entail. Now, I want you to think about the life of David and Solomon, okay? Now, it tells us about David in Chronicles, but it doesn't give as detailed of information as it does in Samuel and Kings, right? It tells us about Solomon. It doesn't give necessarily the detail, but there is an important event that it gives us much more detail about in Second Chronicles in the life of Solomon, which is his dedication of the temple, right? When you get to the dedication of the temple, now, why... Would it not include David's personal sin, but make a huge deal about Solomon's dedication of the temple? Well, it's because of what the book is concerned with, which is worship. David's sin, while egregious and terrible, was personal sin. And the book of Kings, the book of Samuel, those books, those four books, are really concerned about giving as much detail as possible about the men. Chronicles is about what does it require to remain faithful to the covenant. Now, these are people that are coming back from exile. They've been in Babylon. They're getting their society rebuilt. And basically what you have in Chronicles is we're going to look at history from the perspective of how do we not go into the same direction our ancestors did. Now, that doesn't mean history here is any less true or different. It's just from a different perspective. Have you ever told a story and somebody else tells a story of the same event and they sound different? Yeah. Why? Because your perspective is a little different. Now, the event happened one particular way, but you may interpret it different ways. Right? It doesn't change the truth of the event, but it can change the truth of the principle out of it, 
or the change of what you understood from it. Um, one of the things that always amazes me is, it doesn't amaze me, but it's interesting to me, is I, I can preach a, uh, I, I don't preach any more than a 10-minute sermon on Sunday mornings, right? Like I can preach 10 minutes or so, and I preach 20, 30-minute sermon on, on Sunday morning. And to hear people, here's the thing, I preach one sermon, right? I don't preach 250 sermons. But what stands out to people is different based on their life circumstance, what's happening currently, what's going on in their lives, right? And so while this point that I make here may not apply to you in any way, the point that I make in a minute may exactly hit where you are. And so it's a different perspective. What you have in Chronicles and Deuteronomy I mean, and, and the Kings and Samuel is the same story being told from different life circumstances. And it just changes. The chronicler is what all scholars say. I, 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 I think, I mean, I don't have any major evidence, but I, I think Ezra is a logical, we're going to read Ezra next. I think Ezra is a logical writer for it, or somebody around Ezra. Uh, Ezra comes back and reestablishes the law, and then I can see Chronicles being kind of the companion piece. This is the history, and this is the law, and this is why we keep the two together. Right. It, it, it's it's definitely somebody that's interested in making sure they get worship right. And that's why you have those lists of, and then these were the gatekeepers, and these were the singers, and and then you get the list, and then they had the lots, and they drew the first lot, and the 14th lot, and the 18th lot, and they do all that. It's because they're concerned with, let's make sure we get it right. Now, what will happen is as they come back from exile and all that's happening, they will return to the fact that it's not so much they'll learn, that it's not so much the detailed, exact action as it is the heart that is a part of the action. This is real important about setting up this person sings in this way and this person stands in this way and this person sacrificed. But God will come back to him and say, listen, if your heart's not there, all that stuff doesn't matter. And so it's a kind of a, a both and kind of thing. Let's talk about Solomon's dedication of the temple for a minute. What uh, You may not remember that story. That was right at the beginning of this week, uh, last Thursday or so, actually Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. What stood out to you in the midst of that? That's Second Chronicles 5, 6, 7, if you want to turn there, review yourself. It would have been January 21st, if you're reading, I mean January, July 21st. Yes, Miss Teresa. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, Solomon's dedication prayer is just absolutely beautiful. Um, and what I like about it is it's realistic. You know, at those spiritual high moments, those moments of great spiritual victory, it's very easy to be unrealistic about the life that lies ahead. And you can't get much more of a high point than when they dedicate the temple and God's glory is so much that they can't even get in. They can't open the doors. And yet Solomon says in that dedication, and Lord, when we fail to do what we're supposed to do, turn our hearts again back to this place, back to you. And then it says they have those seven days of celebration, right? They, I'm going to tell you this, okay? We just got back from Brazil, so that's probably why it's on my heart a little bit. Jewish people knew how to party. 
seven days, all-out fun, celebrating. Now, can you imagine if I called, uh, I said, all right, everybody, for the next seven days, we're not going to do anything but party here at church. Everybody come. I would get emails tomorrow. Is that the best use of the church's time and resources and money? Don't we need to be doing it? But they celebrated for seven days. And I love this point. You get this feeling that at the end of those seven days, there's almost with remorse that they have to leave. And they get everything cleaned up. And this is kind of a little bit of, of me reading, not into the text, but through the text of the story underneath. I, I can imagine Solomon laying in his bed that night thinking, how in the world did we top that? Right? I mean, God's glory in the temple. We partied for seven days. The country is united. The temple that has been talked about for decades and centuries is built. How in the world do we ever top that? It can only go downhill from here. And then you have that little verse that gets quoted all the time. Second Chronicles, chapter 7. You know what I'm talking about, right? If my people, it says God in that moment spoke to Solomon and said, we like to take that verse and forget the context. If my people who are called by my name will call on me, turn from their wicked ways, humble themselves and pray, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. Basically says Solomon, when times get tough, you come back to exactly what you just did and you focus on me. It's a beautiful story of God's dedication of the temple and God's promise to always be there when we turn back to Him. Yeah, well, you know, it just kind of ran. I mean, there, there are stories that, there are not biblical stories, necessarily, but there are stories of that at Passover and at other times that there was blood running in the street. It was just a visual reminder. And, and we'll talk about in Romans the depth of our sin. And so you have that understanding. The way that the Jewish people understood that was through visual pictures. And the sacrifice of the animals and the blood that would have been shed was a visual image of the depth of their sin. But they definitely didn't have modern drainage systems like we have. Um, so they also weren't as concerned about getting it perfect. They didn't. They didn't have. They didn't have notes. They didn't have sheet music. They just sang. Kind of knew the tune. I was thinking about this with Eli, because I'd read this. And Eli, when I got home Monday night after, I was supposed to be on Monday morning and flights issues. Got home Monday night. We got in the car, and it is, you know, raining, storming. We got to watch most of it from the air as we circled around the airport a little bit and came in. And Eli's in the back, and he had been to Wendy's while I'd been gone and gotten a saxophone. You know it was a high-quality saxophone if it was in the kids' meal at Wendy's. And he was back there and just started playing music. And he didn't care if it was pitch on or not. But And so for us to hear unison, what we do think, Sue, is when it says it was unison and all that, we think pitch-perfect choral perfection. That's not what it means. It just means they were singing the same words at the same time. 
and that if you get enough people doing that, it all evens out. Come over, Joy. I, I have no idea. They had somebody that was that was in charge of cleaning it. There's lots of gold there, wasn't it? Until a, a king came through and got it, and they covered everything back over with bronze. That never happened, right? You know, there there and one of the things that Chronicles does as well is it does that kind of thing with the kings. It shortens how much it tells you about you, and then it gives you a statement at the end. They built them a great memorial, and the people remembered him as someone that did good. There was that one, one of the saddest verses in the Bible that says, and nobody cared that he died. Right? Now how? I mean, yeah, yeah, Uzziah did. That's right. Long term, Uzziah was. Can you imagine if uh, that was in somebody's obituary? Nobody would write that, right? So-and-so passed away yesterday and nobody cared. That's not going to mean obituary, but that's it's a kind of obituary here about him, and it says that. That's my goal in life is just to have somebody care, right? When I die, I want to know. Not that I'll be able to know, but I wish I could know. What else in Second Chronicles? And again, that 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 is a theme throughout the Old Testament, but it's stressed here. Part of the reason is because you've got these people coming back from exile and their concern is that in those 50 years, God wasn't with us and he's forgotten about us. And they're saying, no, no, no. Every time we call upon the name of the Lord, he answers. Yes, Bill. One of the things that's important about the Bathsheba thing being left out is that when you read Samuel and Kings, there's a real impression that that incident and him killing Bathsheba's husband was kind of the last straw in God saying, you're not building me a temple. Now, there were bloodshed. He was a man of war. And it's definitely that Solomon did not have to himself shed blood like David did. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's, not, it's definitely not as explicit as David's earlier days when he was the David has killed his 10,000 and... Saul's goes thousand. So, yeah. And so I, I don't, there's no, I mean, we, it would just be one of the things. I, I, we can go back and read Samuel and see what it describes. It was definitely a much more peaceful time. And Israel had grown to the point now where they didn't have to fight always to take a city. Um, in some ways, you can compare that to us as a country, that th- there are countries across this world that if we wanted to take over, we just roll our tanks in there and our aircraft carriers and say, we're going to take it. And Israel had grown. Many people think by the time you have Solomon, they were one of, one of if not the biggest, uh, not superpower, but they, they were the most important kingdom in that region. And so you didn't want Israel mad at you at that time that until they split. And so he was definitely not, as much of a warrior as David. Now, to said he didn't shed any blood, I, I don't know that that's accurate either. And I think for David, it wasn't that he just he shed blood, that he killed people. It was the amount, and then even in that incident with Bathsheba, the unnecessary blood that was shed. Gary? Say that again. Second Chronicles 15, verse 3, 13. Yeah. And, that, and part of that comes, by, if you look at chapter 15 before that, 
verse 3, this tells you how far they had gotten away from God. For a long time, Israel was without the true God, without a priest to teach and without the law. So you have when Asa comes to power, they have completely cut everything off. And so part of his change was to make sure we're going back to the Lord. Um, And then he says, we're going back into a covenant, and if you aren't with us, then you are against us. And so in verse 15 or 13, when they seek, they did not seek the Lord, they were put to death. It's kind of, yeah. It is a all or nothing kind of decision there, right? I think he gave them the option there. I mean, I, mean, I think that's what it says. I think he stood before them and said, we're going back to serving the Lord, and you can choose the Lord or you can choose your life. Yeah. That, I, I don't know of any other place besides here. But And you have to get to, like I said, the depth to which they had fallen, which included no priest. They didn't have a preacher in the land, and they had to figure out how to get back. And so I, I think that's what it says. And again, I think that the reason the Chronicles got to bring that out is because this isn't a, you're coming back to Jerusalem, you're not coming back for financial gain. We're coming back to establish the kingdom of God. Well, basically, if you were a male over the age of 20, you were a troop. That they didn't. They had an all-volunteer army. Everybody volunteered. All volunteer. I mean, if you were over the age of 20, and war came, you were, you were, yeah, get ready. And so sometimes when it refers to troops that way, you also another thing is the numbers in the Bible are accurate, but understanding in our terms what those numbers are is not so easy. Uh, what I mean by that is that they have words. I mean, when they wrote down the numbers, those numbers were accurate. But us translating that into numbers that we understand, they, you know, they didn't use 200. They, they used different words. They didn't use 200,000 or 100,000. And so figuring out what they mean. That's kind of like uh, the word generation in here. What, what is a generation? Is it 20 years? Is it 25 years? Is it 30 years? So what's a, um, you know, you know, in the, what's a, what's a in a Roman guard or a Roman uh, column? How many are there? Well, we know from history what they are, but in the Jewish terms, what's a company? What's a troop? What's a? And so they would say there were forty thousand companies, and those were ten men each, according to history. So some of those numbers may not be as. You get what I'm saying? They're accurate, but our translation of them may not be. But it is true that if you were over the age of 20, that was kind of their adult line, and you were male, unless you were in a place that you couldn't serve because of physical or mental illness, you served. And you say, well, well, how old did they go to? Well, Caleb was asking for a mountain in his 80s, right? Let me go get my mountain. All right, anything else in Second Chronicles before we go to the New Testament? Romans. All right, let's go to Romans. Romans has been called the most important book of theology in the history of the world. It's kind of a small statement, right? It's been called Paul's masterpiece, which is pretty impressive since he's got several other books in the Bible. It's been called the most clear presentation of the gospel 
and the most confusing at the same time. So hopefully you're all just clear, so no questions, right? What questions do you have? What do you wonder about in the book of Romans? Chapter 11, verse 25. Let's all get there. Okay. Now, I think it's just those. I mean, there's every other evidence of Scripture is that it's just those that accept Christ. Um, but I think what Paul, Paul begins to use the word Israel there kind of interchangeably in some way. I mean, he obviously is talking about his home country, but he also begins to identify those that are followers of Jesus as the new Israel. He doesn't use that term, but like he doesn't call it the new Israel. But there begins to be some play there between Paul talking about the true Israelites are not just those that are circumcised. The true Israelites are those that accept Jesus as their Savior. He begins to use that terminology. They're circumcised of the heart. So I don't know that he is meaning a political entity there as much as a spiritual reality. That sounded much more impressive than I intended for it to sound there. Other questions? Book of Romans. You told me you covered that all last week, Alan. <laughs> all right, here's here's the uh, chapter 5, verse 12. Death through Adam, life through Christ. Therefore, sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sin. What it's saying there is the, kind of the, the uh, theological concept of original sin. Um, not, as I read this week in somebody that, Somebody went to Sunday school, a, a teenager, and heard original sin and thought, wow, I can be original in sinning? That's cool. That's not what it's meant there, all right? What it means there is original sin is that we're born um, with a flesh that will rebel against God, that we have all chosen to do that, and it's because of Adam's mistake that is passed down, and then we individually choose that as well, okay? And so through... Adam, sin came into the world, and it didn't come in dripping. It came in in a rush. All right? If you remember, we read Genesis. It all happens by chapter 6, 7, 8, 9. God's ready to destroy the world. Okay? So, because all sin. That's the controversial part, right? You're not, you don't want me to do verse 13. Oh, okay. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. The sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Now, the New Living says it in a different way that most of you are reading, and I don't like the way the New Living says it, so I read it out of the NIV. Okay? I'll tell you why in a minute. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as Adam did, who was a pattern of the one to come. Here's the issue. Paul builds this whole argument around the fact that the law did not save us, but showed us how bad we are. Right? He makes that point in there. That the purpose of the law was not so we would go, check that, check that, did that, got that, I got 100% on my test, I'm good with God. It was to show us that we fail in so many ways, and that without God there is no hope. And so he says all of that. Well, then somebody will ask the question, well, what about before the law? There were years before the law. Law came through Moses. That's not even in the first book of the Bible. There's a whole book before that. What about those people? What about Abraham? What about Joseph? What about all those people that were destroyed in the flood? Did they all get to go to heaven because there wasn't any sin? And Paul says, no, there was sin. 
Now here's where it gets a little tricky. The word used in verse 13, when it says, before the law was given, sin was in the world, the next word, there are, in the Bible there are tons of words for the word sin. But the word there used for sin is not taken into account, moves from a universal concept of sin to a personal transgression, a personal rebellion, a personal act. And so what Paul is basically saying is they may not have violated a specific rule that was established, but because of what Adam did and because of man's general disposition, they still sinned. It just wasn't against a specific law. They're not excused from the, go- the principles of God. Okay, What he's trying to get at is what it almost sounds like he's saying is what he's fighting against. Because when you read that, what you think is, he's saying that when he sinned before the, before the law, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is everyone that has ever lived is just as accountable to God, whether that is before the law, during the law, during Christ, or where we live after Christ. And what's the verdict? How many of us have ever passed the test without Christ? None. God doesn't grade on a curve, unfortunately, right? We do. God doesn't grade on a curve. And so the point there is there was sin before the law, but it wasn't against a specific law. It was sin in the general sense of violating and rebellion of God. Does that make sense? Yeah, but it was, sin was the sin was just not following God completely. Now, that's sin. Sin is missing the mark, not following God completely. Transgression here, it, transgression, the word that is actually better translated there than not counted against. Transgression there means is a legal term meaning that you have violated the law. He says there wasn't any violation of the law because there was no law, but there was still sin. Here's my simplest answer to that, Ms. Dottie. The Bible just tells us that they're saved by their faith. That's what it says about Abraham, and that's the way we have to take it. I, I, don't, I can't. That's a question we can pull up a chair and ask Abraham when we get to heaven and ask him. I, I don't know. There are lots of scholars that like to sit around for hours and debate that. And one of the things that sometimes frustrates me, those same scholars won't walk down the street and talk to their neighbor about Jesus that we know is the way. Uh, I mean, it's fine to debate those kind of things, but let's live in the, today's world too. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I think it's in what God had revealed to them at that point, faith. I mean, with Abraham, it's obvious the things that he did in his life that showed faith. It was leaving the land of his forefathers. It was being willing to sacrifice his son. It was um, repenting when things came, went wrong. But, right, and what God would say is, what, what Paul, I think, would say here is, Adam and Eve didn't have the law either, but they broke their covenant with God. I mean, they, they didn't have a law. Well, they had one rule. It wasn't the law. You know, when you talk about the law here, they're talking about, Deuteronomy. They're talking about Leviticus. They're talking about what was given at Mount Sinai. So it wasn't the law, it wasn't the tablets and those things, but they had a rule they broke. They brought sin into the world. 
Cain and Abel is another example. There, there wasn't a law, but you're not supposed to kill your brother. I mean, you know that, right? We'll let the uh, Rush family discuss that amongst themselves over here, whether or not they can kill their brother. All right, anything else in Romans? He's as a believer. Because when he's speaking that, it's present tense all the way through. Um, And the New Living really kind of butchers that because they just want to get around the what I want to do, I do not do. What I want to do, I do. You know, what I do not want to do, I do. What I want to do, I do not do. They, they kind of, you can get confusing. And so they, they kind of get around that, but we know what he means, right? We know what he, how he lives. And I, and I think it does speak to the fact that we like to put Paul on this pedestal, and he's not there. I mean, he's, he calls himself the chief of sinners, and we read that and go, oh, Paul's just being modest there. And Paul had some issues, and he was aware of that. Um, I think there was, I think it's in Galatians where he says that he opposes Peter face to face. And I don't think he says that in a real proud way. Hey, listen, look at me, look what I did. I think it was, we got down and we had some words and probably weren't good, but we got the issue right. Paul, I think Paul, you know, was, you know, we talked about this in Acts when he says. I don't want John Mark on my team. He, he abandoned me. I don't want him. Barnabas kind of talks him into it. And they split company. And I, I don't think that's a high point in Paul's career. Um, but here's the thing. Hosea was a book actually written to whom? I mean, it was through the Hosea the prophet, but who was it written to? It was written to Israel, right? This is one of those creative uses of the Old Testament. Um, let's go look at that for a minute. You got a reference there. Okay, Hosea 2. Go back to Hosea 2. You know the story of Hosea, right? It's a story you can't tell in church. And here's the point that God is making. He's saying, Hosea, uh, who, what happens? Hosea is married to the most attractive name in the history of womanhood, Gomer, right? So Hosea and Gomer, that's not, some of you remember Gomer Pyle, USMC, that's not him. Gomer and Hosea get married. They have kids. What do they name the kids? No, no, not Goober, no. What do they they name the kids? Not my people, Lo-Ami, and not my love, Lo-Ruamah. Not my love, right? Here's one of the crazy things about what we did in Brazil. One of the sweetest, most precious interpreters we have is named Lo Ruma. Not my love. She doesn't go by that name because she understands what it means now. I don't think her mother knew what it meant when she named her that. But we just call her Lo. Alright? But every time I hear her or talk to her, I think of this this passage. Could you imagine naming your kid not my child or not my people and not my loved one. Like we read the Hebrews, like, oh yeah, that's low real mom. But that's literally like putting on the birth certificate. This is not my loved one, Larson. All right. And so God says in Hosea, what's going to happen is because of repentance and what goes on, I will call those who are not my loved. I will call them the one that I love. And so when we get to the book of Romans. 
it's saying that prophecy is fulfilled in the Gentiles. It's not necessarily that, that God, to the Jewish mindset, the Gentiles were unloved. And what God is saying is that has never been the case. It's just their time is now through Jesus. Does that answer your question, Pastor Janet? There wasn't, a, there wasn't a time when he goes, all right, now I'm going to start loving them. But he kind of interplays there. Yeah. Yeah, he quotes the Old Testament all the time in the book of Romans. What else in Romans? Any other questions you have? Some of you are all working on worn Bibles. I can see them out there. That's good. All right, let's go to Psalms and Proverbs. Anything in there that stuck out? Read through the Psalms a couple of times or Proverbs, anything there? Favorite proverb of the week? Anybody? There's an understanding that true intellect is craving more. This idea that we need to, to know more. Um, and the idea there is basically is if you're not learning, you're going backwards. You're not staying in the same place. You're either getting better or you're getting worse. You're not staying the same. Anybody else? Questions or favorite ones here? Proverbs 19:18. Parents' dilemma, discipline your children while there is hope. Otherwise, you will ruin their lives. And then Proverbs 19:21 was... Is one of the things that I always learn in Brazil is this little proverb. You can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. You can do all the planning you want, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. So basically that means we don't plan anything, right? Ever. You can make plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. 